Oh, thanks a lot. So good to be with you. We have looked forward to this for months. Uh, Stephen was out with us last October uh, and spoke in our uh, church family, and so we got to know him a little bit, and uh, just so privileged to be able to actually see. I feel like I know you uh, because of the years of visiting with Stephen, and uh, it's been a real encouragement. Uh, I'm trying to remember when we first met Stephen, probably five, six years ago. Uh, it's been great to be a mentor to Stephen because when I first met him, he was such a shy, introverted uh, kind of like a wallflower, just sitting in the corner, not willing to talk to anyone. And I've just tried to coach that out of him to say, uh, I just remember the first phone call I had with him, uh, the guy who introduced me to him, he said, you won't uh, have any trouble carrying a conversation. In fact, Stephen will probably carry the whole thing. And I think I just listened on the phone for the first little while, hearing the whole story of uh, God's vision that he has uh, burdened Stephen with and this church with for uh, the island of Newfoundland and Labrador as well. Uh, and the th uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that call this place home. And so then to be able to come out and visit a few years ago uh, and to be with you now. So to, and to be here representing Northview Church uh, as a partner with you because we share a very similar vision to wanting to see uh, churches planted in our region but all across the country. Uh, we know that we cannot be actively engaged in every area of the country. Obviously, every local church has to take responsibility for your own backyard. So our primary responsibility is the Fraser Valley. So Greater Vancouver and then out, if you know that area at all, from Whistler to Hope, we sort of say is our kind of neck of the woods. There's about 3 million people in that stretch of real estate. And if we could have a part of, uh, be part of God's plan in impacting that region and then, of course, the whole of BC, that would be probably a big enough assignment for us alone. Uh, but we're looking for partners all across the country who share the vision to see uh, the gospel replanted really is the vision because uh, Canada at one point in time we might have said it was evangelized but needs to be re-evangelized. So what links us together is a common shared vision, a love of theology, a love of the gospel, a love of God's word, a love for one another's people as brothers and sisters in Christ, and then of course a love for Canada and the need that's in front of us. Uh, and so I'm going to just throw a few numbers on the screen and then just talk about them. So if you could just remember those numbers, uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, for the last 10 to 15 years, every year between three and 400 churches close their doors for the very last time. And I'm sure you've driven by empty church buildings and places where there once was a church fellowship. In fact, the building that we're in right now was a previous church, right, Stephen, that closed its doors. Uh, so on average, one per day over these last 10 to 15 years. And the question mark right now, of course, is what's going to happen post-COVID? Uh, so many churches that were struggling going into the pandemic and then just shrunk during that time coming out of it, will there be uh, even a greater wave? And so if we're not planting at least three, 400 across the country, we're not even keeping up with those who are closing their doors. Uh, those other two uh, or three numbers there, uh, 85 represents the percentage of churches, evangelical churches that are either plateaued or declining. So 85% of existing churches are either just stagnant, plateaued, or the majority actually are declining in number. 95 is a shocking number. That 95% of evangelical churches in North America, both Canada and the U.S., will never plant a church. I don't know if you knew that. 95% of local churches never daughter another church. It's just somehow not in our psyche. I mean, every church at one point in time was a church plant. Every church has a starting point somewhere back in time where they were planted. But the idea that they would then multiply and have children of their own, it's an amazing thing that churches are not planting churches. And then that number two represents, you say, well, the 85% plateau, there's at least then 15% that are growing. That's great. But that 15% of churches that are growing, only 2% of that growth comes through evangelism. 
The vast majority of that growth comes from Christians moving around. So either people move across the country, they move to a different community, they find a church, or they move across town from church to church and they transfer in from other places. And then the other great percentage of it is we're continuing to make babies, so that's great. And we keep a good percentage of our children in the church, that's great. But only about 10% of that growth is actually people coming either back to church, prodigals, those who have walked away, and then about 2% true evangelistic growth. So those are very critical numbers. So our church is 42 years old, uh, and like many North American churches, didn't really have a vision for multiplication or planting, and we backed into it. Uh, about seven, eight years ago, one of our sister churches in our Denom uh, phoned up, and they basically said, hey, we're, we're ready to close our doors. Uh, we've got a facility here, but we need some help. Could you come and replant us? It really was not on the radar. And so that began this journey of planting and replanting of churches. And so we've been able to partner in our uh, little neck of the real estate out there with four or five churches in the last uh, seven to eight years, helping get restarted and replanting. So it wasn't really intentional. It was God just backed us into this. But we're dreaming of a day. This is our big, hairy, audacious goal we talk about. A day when there is a gospel-centered church within reach of every Canadian. That that would be simple enough. We think that the Lord makes disciples through healthy local churches. So if there could be a healthy local church within reach of every Canadian. So every community that needs gospel-centered churches planted, that's what we want to talk about. Now, I didn't come to talk about Northview, so that is not any part of my message time. So now you can start my message now, right, Stephen? Because Stephen, you said I could have 40 minutes, but not, so that's not included. There you go. But in the short time that we've got together, I really want to dig into that passage and the theme of renewal or re-evangelization. And Steve, thanks for your prayer. I mean, your prayer just fits so beautifully with what we're going to talk about today. And that passage that was read, Ezekiel 37, that's really going to be our anchor text, but we're, we're going to do a skim through the entire book of Ezekiel, 48 chapters. And we'll spend about five minutes on each chapter. Stephen, you told me these people had a sense of humor and that they would laugh. So uh, anyway, no, we're not. But we are going to skim through the whole. But we're going to grab that metaphor from chapter 37. And it's this question, this, this text, this metaphor that applies to Israel, I want to apply to the Canadian church and, and suggest that it should ignite within us a heart for spiritual renewal. And that when God asks Ezekiel this question, it should also push us to ask this question, can these bones live? Or, or if you wanted to state the big idea in the form of a question, it would be this, is it ever too late for the Spirit of God to move? Is it ever too late for the Spirit of God to move? Or if you want to put it in a positive way, you'd say, well, it ain't over till it's over. That God is not finished yet. He's not finished yet. So if you look back through the historic revival movements, we won't take a lot of time there, but there's, there's a lot of common factors in them. Powerful preaching and prayer are the two common denominators. And whether you think biblically, uh, the revivals under Josiah, uh, Ezekiel being called the watchman on the wall, the nation building of Ezra and Nehemiah, John the Baptist, prepare ye the way of the Lord. You just read through the Bible, the periods of renewal and revival in the Bible. Or you look through church history, and so you go to the Reformation or the, the great revivals of history, the, the Welsh renewal and the Azusa Street revivals, or the great awakenings that came up the, the northeastern coast of uh, the U.S. and spilled over into Canada, and guys like Henry Lyon, who came into Nova Scotia and preached revival back in the day. 
those effects of those movements, or you think through the, the great leaders of these movements, like John Wesley and George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. Uh, Wesley and Whitfield are just such a f- fascinating couple to, uh, to study because they were good friends, they were buddies, and yet one was an Arminian and one was a Calvinist. One eulogized the other. I forget which way it was. When one passed first, the other one eulogized him at his funeral. They were that tight buddies, and yet their theology took them in different directions. But what united them was a heart for lost souls. And that whole line that they sort of came up with was, I'm going to preach like an Arminian, and I'm going to sleep like a Calvinist. (laughs) That was sort of the partnership that they had. When we study revival, you see this discernible pattern that God first begins with his own people. And so that's who I'm talking to today. I'm assuming if you're in this room that you at least claim some sort of affiliation with a a Christian uh, idea or concept. It's why you're here. And and even if you say only in name or nominal, I'm exploring it, but I'm talking to those who would might claim themselves to be the people of God. And, And God begins first in calling back his own people. And awakening them to complacency and then calling back whose spiritual passion has grown cold and he ignites in his own this Holy Spirit engineered passion for holiness and prayer. And then out of his work with his people, it begins to spill over into the community. Uh, Tim Keller, a guy down in New York, I'm sure you've heard of him. Uh, talks about the four stages of renewal and revival. And he said the first is this, that sleepy Christians wake up. That's what happens in renewal times, is those who are asleep in the church and the nominal Christians, which is the vast majority of Canadian citizens still claim to be Christian, but they're just nominal. They're Christian in name only. That nominal Christians actually start getting saved. And then the lost start to come to faith in Christ. And then ultimately the city, the community, the nation is affected. And I think as we talk about renewal and revival, we often want to run to step three and four. We want to run right away to say the lost are going to get saved and the city's going to be changed and the nation's going to be transformed. You're like, yeah, but God starts first with his own people. He starts with sleepy Christians waking us up. And so the question is, what would ignite within us a passion for renewal? And these historic renewal movements have had these common denominators of prayer and preaching. We saw it in the text that was read just a few moments ago. Unified, sustained, urgent, kingdom-focused praying. Christ-centered, sin-confronting, Jesus-exalting, preaching. And both of those together fan into flame what the Holy Spirit is trying to create. So let me give you a little bit of history. Uh, You know this, but let me take you back to high school class. Canada is 155 years old, in case you've forgotten that. Now, I know that Newfoundland is much older, but also much younger, right? So 500 years plus St. John's. And yet only a few years as part of confederation, right? You were the last to join the party. Thanks to uh, what Joey Smallwood, do I have it right? Yes, back in 1949. But it is our shared history that in 1864, there were 23 leaders who met in Charlottetown, PEI, to talk about this thing called confederation. And to talk about if we could get this through the British North American Act in the British Parliament. And two and a half years later in 1867, that thing passed. But in those early days, the story is told, and what's fascinating, if you're immigrating to Canada like I did, and you take the 
citizenship test and they give you this little booklet, you will read in that booklet that is still being given to new Canadian citizens today the story of Sir Leonard Tilley who comes down from his morning devotions with a scripture verse to tell these guys, if we can get this thing through, it's got to be the dominion of Canada based on Psalm 72 verse 8 because I was reading my devotions in Psalm 72 this morning. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. I was blown away by that. I'm reading as a new Canadian citizen this story, and I'm like, our Canadian government is still printing that very story, telling us this was the foundation of our nation. And if you've been to Ottawa and you've stood at that peace tower, if you go to the east side, the arches are all inscribed with scripture. That scripture is inscribed on the easternmost arch, that he would have dominion. Speaking, of course, of King Jesus. Now, some, I want to just take a note here. Some have said, you know what? All this was was a colonial test. They were saying the king would rule. Well, there was no king at that point in time. It was a queen, by the way. It was Queen Victoria. But this text is not a colonial text. This text is a messianic text. Psalm 72 is speaking about King Jesus. And the reason we know that is because when Zechariah quotes it, he quotes directly from this text and he says, and your king is going to come to you humble and riding on the back of a donkey on the colt, the foal of a donkey. Do you know who that one is? You get to the Gospels, yeah, and it's Jesus who comes riding into town on the back of a donkey. It is clearly a messianic text. So the prayer here is that King Jesus would have dominion from sea to sea, from the rivers to the end of the earth. When they wrote the Canadian Charter of Rights, it's interesting that the first sentence is this, whereas Canada is founded upon principles that recognize, look at these words, the supremacy of God and the rule of law. That when our charter of rights as a nation was written, that it opens with this phrase, as Canadians, we recognize that God is supreme. Pretty amazing. But you fast forward 155 years later and the spiritual landscape has dramatically changed. And you know this. Two-thirds of Canadians still claim to be Christian, quote-unquote, whatever that means to them. But they're completely disengaged from church for a large part. The vast majority are Catholics and mainlines, evangelicals, those who self-identify as we would as gospel-centered evangelical Bible-believing people represent about seven to eight percent of Canadian population today. But what's interesting is only about three to four percent of them actually are involved in the church. So they claim to be evangelical, but only half go to church. Uh, the most startling shift in Canada's religious demographic is that the fastest growing religious demographic in Canada is the none category. I have no religious affiliation. Uh, back in 1971, it was only 4% of Canadians had that affiliation. The last time that question was asked was 2011, formally on the census. It had increased 600% to 24% of Canadians said, I have no religious affiliation. Now, in the last 12 years, sociologists are estimating it's about one in three across the country. And what's interesting is from east to west, it gets more liberal. So in Newfoundland actually is the lowest number of those who claim no religious affiliation. And BC is the highest number. Almost 50% of British Columbia says no religious affiliation. It's a little bit crazy. That's why we came out here, uh, Stephen, to get a little bit of gospel. Thank you for inviting us. The fastest growing religious demographic. But what's more sobering is that thought that the 7 to 8% who do claim to be evangelical that only half belong to a church. So you say, what does it mean practically? Well, practically what it means to us is that from on an average weekend, St. John's, Newfoundland out to Victoria, British Columbia, 
that in gospel-centered churches, there's between maybe one and a half, maybe at the very greatest on a really good weekend, two million people in gospel-centered churches out of 38 million Canadians. So you say the need of the hour is great. We are living in the midst of a modern mission field. I remember sharing these stats at one point in in a meeting and a a missionary who had spent most of their life in Pakistan came and talked to me afterwards and he goes, those stats are amazing to me because what I'm listening to you talk about, you talk about Quebec and we talk about you guys when you're not around because Stephen has told us this, that Newfoundland is less than 1% evangelical. Pakistan is 1.6% evangelical. So in other words, there's more evangelical believers in Pakistan than there, there are in a couple regions of our country, Newfoundland and Quebec. We live in a modern mission field. So by now, somebody's asking, well, so what? Uh, at least my guys are asking, so what? I can tell they're glazed over there. Why bother with all the history and the statistics? Well, the reason is this, because part of our assignment as Christians is to be students of our time and our culture. Students of the word, yes, primarily, but also students of the culture. One of my favorite passages, 1 Chronicles 12, 32, is listing out David's mighty men and some from each tribe, but there's a comment about the men of Issachar there in the middle of chapter 12, and it says, the men of Issachar understood their times and knew what Israel should do. They understood the culture and what was going on around them. And so as followers of Jesus, we've got to have our eyes lifted up to the condition of the capital C church across Canada. And yes, and amen, there are hundreds of flourishing congregations where evangelism and discipleship are still vibrant, There's a heart for the lost in this missional outpost to to reach out, and that's awesome. But for every church that is flourishing, there are dozens that are dying on the vine. Uh, I will often ask, uh, pastors in particular as I'm visiting with them, but even just Christians in general, can you tell me the top 10 churches in your city that are just nailing it for the kingdom, where the gospel is preached, where people are coming to faith, people are being discipled? Give me the top 10 list. And often you'll see people like almost glaze over like deers in a headlight. It's like, I can give you two or three, I can give you six maybe, but to get a dozen or 10, the top 10, those who are vibrant and flourishing, I mean, just think about it. If somebody phoned you up and said, hey, we're moving to St. John's and we're going to be looking for a good vibrant church, give me a list of several that we can visit. What list would you be able to give them? So we look at Ezekiel 37 and I want to challenge you and I want to leave you this question today. What would it take? What might it take? To ignite in your soul, your soul, every one of you, a passionate urgency for renewal in the church and revival across our nation. What would it take for the Lord to wake us up? So Ezekiel 37, Israel is in the early days of the Babylonian exile. It's just a few years in. And the spiritual conditions are not that much unlike our day. And I would suggest that it could be used as a metaphor for our own nation today. And as you do a quick scan through this book, uh, you will see how the Lord stirs up Ezekiel's heart and then stirs up the people's heart. And and so we're just going to do a run through. Keep your your, your notes there or your your thumb in chapter 37 because we're going to get back to that text. But just scan through with it. The the book opens in this way with Ezekiel on his face in worship. It, It opens up. It's a lot like the book of Revelation. It opens up with this uh, uh, apocalyptic vision of the kingdom of heaven, and you see about these heavenly beings, and you read the first part of Revelation, and you see some of the same kind of apocalyptic language. But what ends up is that Ezekiel ends on his face in worship. And you ask yourself the question, when was the last time that I was so moved with the presence and the power of God that I felt like I had to get on my face? 
It's a compelling question, right, to think that through. When was I so deeply moved by the, the power of God in, in a time of worship or a time of prayer that I've just like, I have just got to get on my knees. I, I've got to lift up my hands. I've got to, I've got to pray. I've got to fall down before the Lord because that's how Ezekiel starts. It's like he's on his face and the Lord has to stand him up on his feet. He grabs him by the scruff of the neck and stands him and goes, I've got a commission for you. And he commissions him to go and preach. And he says, and you're not going to preach to people of a foreign language. You're not going to preach to those outside the people of God. You're going to preach to my own people. And I need to tell you this right up front. They're not going to listen to you. What a great commission for any preacher, right? Go and preach, but they're not going to listen. So he says this, the house of Israel, chapter three, the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you. For they're not willing to listen to me. Because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. Behold, I have made your face as hard as their face and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. I love that because it's like, God give us stubborn, hard-headed preachers. Please, God. That's really what that text says, right? Because if God's people are stubborn and they have hard foreheads, then the pastors preaching in our pulpits need to have the strength of character to go, you know what, I'm just going to continue to press through. And the next 30 chapters or so just detail out God's plans for judgment on Israel and the nations surrounding them. But it's significant that he starts with his own people, just like Keller said, sleepy people waking up. You see, the nations around you might have the excuse that they have never known the ways of God. They might have that excuse, but you don't have that excuse because you are my people and you've rejected my ways. You've walked away. And so as we think of Canada today, there's, there's a lot of areas of our society that we could look at and, and go like, God, why don't you step in? Why don't you just circumvent what's going on in our culture around us? But I think what God is ultimately concerned about is not the paganism of our surrounding nations, but ultimately he is concerned about the spiritual drift of his own people to start with. And peppered here and there throughout this verse, you've got, or throughout the book, you've got these striking one-liners. So I'll just give you a few of them. Ezekiel 14, son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it and, it break, and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it and cut it off from man and beast. In essence, and what that verse is saying is when the nation sins, I'm going to lift my hand to blessing. And Proverbs 14, very, very similar text. Righteousness exalts a nation. But sin is a reproach to any people. And if you study the history of even nations and empires and kingdoms and go those who followed the way of the Lord and then when they drifted from the way of the Lord and how the hand of the Lord is lifted off of those nations. And you wonder, Lord, how much longer in Canada has his hand of blessing already been lifted? Will it be lifted if we do not exalt him across our land? So the first two-thirds, really, of this book, it's 48 chapters long. It really goes from bad to bad to worse. Like, it's quite a discouraging text to read. But in the midst of it, sprinkled through it, there are these words of encouragement, cries for repentance, returning. Uh, chapter 14, 6, Then said the Lord God, Repent and turn away from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations. A ch couple chapters later, verse 18, chapter 18, But if a wicked person turns away from his sin that he's committed and keeps my statutes and does what is just and right, he will surely live, he shall not die. And if you fast forward 33 chapters, you get, uh, chapter 33 rather, you get Ezekiel's commission again. And it says there in verse 7, So son of man, I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. And if you read the entirety of that chapter, God basically just says to Ezekiel, it's your job to blow the trumpet. 
As the watchman standing on the wall, the troops, the enemy troops are coming in, you blow the trumpet, you get the warning. What the people do with the warning is on them. You're not responsible necessarily for their response, but as the watchman, you're responsible to blow the trumpet, get the word out. And as it comes to an end, that chapter, there's this somewhat humorous uh, phrasing. Uh, God has a sense of humor in how the scriptures are written. It says, as for you, son of man, your people who talk together about you. So that's interesting. The people are talking about the preacher on the walls and at the doors of their houses, say to one another, each to his brother, come and hear what the word that comes from the Lord is. And they come to you as people come and they sit before you as a people and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouth, they will act. Their heart is set on their gain. In other words, you put that in our modern language and we're like, you know what? The, the people still want you to preach. The people want churches to still gather. They want guys to stand up in the pulpit and say, this is what the Lord says. And in fact, even during the week, they're talking about you in the neighborhood. Hmm. Wonder what this uh, preacher is going to say this week. Uh, are you going to the gathering? Oh, if you're going, I'll go. It, it'll be interesting. Uh, you know, he's, he's entertaining. He tells lots of good story. They, they fill the seats. They come to church. They're listening. But the text says, but they have no intention of actually applying it. In fact, it says, what you are to them is nothing more than and some texts even use this language, a musician playing silly love songs. Just silly little love songs. That's what you are. Turn on the radio, listen to a ditty, go to church, listen to a sermon, nothing different. In chapter 34, and we'll just skip this one because in that chapter, God takes on the shepherds of his church. And for pastors and theologians and scholars and anybody in ministry, this is a very sobering chapter in this text because God basically looks at the shepherds of his church, the pastors, the elders, the leaders, and he says to them as the leaders, the church is in the situation it's in because of you, my shepherds. You've not been doing your job. You've not been taking the people to the word of God. And so because you're not shepherding my people, I, the Lord God, will step in and I will be their shepherd myself. Chapter 36 is a chapter of hope and restoration. Thus says the Lord God, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. It's for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations. I'm going to act, the Lord says, for my sake. And I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What beautiful provinces. And then finally we get to what was read earlier, chapter 37. This valley of dry bones. The hand of the Lord was on me and he brought me in the spirit, set me in the middle of the valley and it was full of dry bones. He led me around and then he asked this question, son of man, can these bones live? Now, I don't know. Have you stopped and just pondered that and thought about it? Like the imagery? I mean, it looks like a sci-fi movie, right? So you step into this valley and literally the valley is filled with skeletal remains. Can you imagine this? There's human skeletal bones all across the valley floor and you're standing in the midst of them. What would that be like? And then the Lord says, can these bones live? And you're like, I hope not. Like, really, Lord? Like, honestly, is that, that's the question you want to ask? Like, freak me out. Like, skeletal remains coming. Like, that's the question. Can these bones live? So verse 4, here's what I want you to do, Ezekiel. I want you to preach to the bones. Prophesy over them. So revival and renewal always has great preaching. Ezekiel starts by preaching to these bones, and then he hears a noise. 
rattle. They're coming together. Dim bones, dim bones, dim dry bones, dim bones, dim bones, dim. Yeah, you know that song, right? Verse 9, that's critical. And he said to me, verse 7, he prophesies to the bones and the sound comes together. And then, interesting to this, verse 9, he says, prophesy to the breath. And the breath, of course, represents the Spirit of God. In other words, call out to the Spirit of God. So preach to the people and preach to the Spirit. Preach to the people and call out to the Spirit. Spirit of God, you've got to blow. Like, yes, the people need to wake up, but Spirit of God, you've got to blow. Great preaching and great praying, we would say. Preaching and praying, always going in tandem. And so, and then verse 11, God explains to Ezekiel what this picture is about. Verse 11, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. And they say, our bones are dried up. Our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. You, you know the circumstance. They have been dragged from Jerusalem, 900 miles east and dropped in Babylon on the, the shores of the, the Babylonian river. And Psalm 137, how can we sing the songs of God in this God-forsaken land? They, they mock us. They want us to sing the songs of God, but how can we do that? In our context, I will often say to people, it would be like if you were dragged out of the Fraser Valley and dropped over in Swift Current, Saskatchewan. I mean, for you guys, it's 900 miles and you'd be dropped in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, right? So you got to go somewhere else. But if we dragged you west and just said, now, praise God here in this form and land. That's their context. And, and they're, they're, they're crying out, our bones are dried up. And verse 14 is this great promise of renewal. And I will put my spirit in you. You will live. I'll place, in your, I'll place you in your own land. And then you will know that I am the Lord. I've spoken. And I love this phrase. I will do it. Is it ever too late for the spirit of God to move? It ain't over till it's over. God's not finished yet. Right? Now, from this point in the book, it's all up and to the right. So we'll just do a quick scan, verse 30, chapter 38. So I'll show my greatness and my holiness, and I'll make myself known in the eyes of many nations, chapter 38, 23, and they will know that I am the Lord. And then chapter 39, 21, I will set my glory among the nations. Take it to the bank, signed, sealed, and delivered. The glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, as Habakkuk says. Chapter 40, you get this promise of the new temple. The temple will be rebuilt, and it's both a present prophecy of the rebuilding that will happen under Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, those days, and it's also a future prophecy of the book of Revelation when the, the new heavens, the new earth, the new temple is built. And chapter 43, it is built, and again, we find Ezra face down in worship. Chapter 44, verse 4, the glory of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord, and I fell on my face. Those passages for me, the Old Testament passages, whenever I come to one of those, I'm like, God, what are we missing? What are we missing in our generation when that sense of the, the presence and the power of God, the glory of God filling the temple to such a degree that we would find we've got to cry out and worship? And then chapter 47, as we get to the end, he's like, you know what? Walk around to the door of the temple and see what you see. So, so I get around the east side of the temple, and there's water trickling out under the door. That's strange. Walk out a little ways, and the water's now up to my ankles. Walk out a little bit further, it's up to my knees. It's waist deep, and then it's up to my neck, and then before you know it, I'm swimming in this river. 
This river that's coming out from the, king, the, the temple of God and going out to water the nations, it says. And then it uses the very same language as the last book of the Bible, Revelation 22, of the streams of river of life and there are trees by it bearing their fruit and seasons. It's an image of God's blessing, the river of God, the streams of God flowing out from the temple of God. And then the very last verse of this, 48 chapters long, the very last verse is this. And the name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there. And oh, that that would be the cry of every pastor and every Christian and every church in every city that we would say our cities would be known by that name. Wouldn't it be interesting if you heard St. John's Newfoundland and you thought the Lord is there. Abbotsford, BC, the Lord is there. Ottawa, the Lord is there. Wouldn't that be cool if that's what we were known for? So obviously I got to wrap it. I got to land this plane. Our plane landed at 2 a.m. So we got to land this plane now. It's been my prayer for several years that God would take this simple theme and somehow ignite our passion across this country from sea to sea, from coast to coast, from north to south for a spirit-driven urgency that we would cry out to God for our nation once again and that we might actually ask the question of history and that question is, will he indeed? Will he indeed? What do you mean by that? Well, will King Jesus really have dominion from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth? Will he indeed? That was our founding document. It is actually the motto of Canada, sea to sea. It is our national motto. Can these bones live? Is it ever too late for the Spirit of God to do a new work? It ain't over till it's over, right? That idea of dead things living is such a common theme in the scripture. You know this. I love C.S. Lewis' statement. God's not in the business of making bad people good. Now, that's a shocker to a lot of people when they just see it like that. But in the business of making dead people live. Yes, of course, he sanctifies us, he changes us, he renews us through his work. Bad people do become better people, but that's not God's primary business. God's primary business is to call to dead people, spiritually dead, in their trespasses and sins and bring them to life. That's God's business. And it is a work that only God can do. And whether we're talking the macro scene of world evangelization anywhere around the, the planet or the individual life of one individual person, it's God's work to call them into life. Let me, let me just throw up a, a whole bunch of references here. John 6, Jesus said, no one comes to me unless the father who sent me draws them. Romans 10 says, or Romans 3.10 says, there's none righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks God. Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. 1 Corinthians 2, the natural person can't discern the things of the Spirit because they're spiritually discerned. Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain. Zechariah 4, not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. And you're going, what did you tack on that list of seven verses at the end of an already too long message? Why would you do that? And it's simply this, to remind us that until we realize that we cannot do this, then we will not be driven to our knees in prayer. Until we realize that salvation is of the Lord, 
That there are certain things that only the Spirit of God can do. And yes, we have a part to play. We're His hands, His feet, His voice. We plead with people, be reconciled to God. But none of us can reach into another human heart and somehow turn the light on. Bing, it comes alive. To call a dead person to life. We do not have that power. Only the Spirit of God can do that work. And so if we believe that, and I, I know you at least, I know you're being taught this because I know your pastor... And I hope you believe this, that it is of the Lord entirely. Salvation is God's work. And so if it's his work and we can't do it, then we've got to get on our faces and go, God, do what you can do, God. We'll do what we can do. We'll love our neighbors. We'll be friendly. We will witness. We will testify. We'll be good, you know, do good works and love on people and, and preach the gospel. We'll do everything humanly possible. But at the end of the day, that spiritual transaction is up to God and God alone. And so as you look at your own personal life, every single one of us have areas of dry bones in our lives, some degree of spiritual deadness, of of apathy or spiritual drift or whatever you want to call it. And and it's only a fresh touch of God's spirit that is going to change that. And so whether you're looking at your marriage and you go, you know what, there's pieces of my marriage that I'm just not satisfied with that area of my marriage. It's just, it's a dead part of our marriage or it's an apathetic part of our marriage and it's something the spirit of God's got to do. Or if you look at your kids and you're like, our kids are drifting spiritually. They're not interested in the things of God. Or or as you look at the nation or the spiritual hurt and relationships, as we look around at our neighborhoods and our communities, our, our cities and our nation, there's only certain things that the spirit of God can do. Only he can mend the hurt and the brokenness in these relationships. And so we've got to cry that the Spirit of God would blow across our nation. But the beautiful promise of God is this. Can these bones live? Well, in essence, he says you better believe they can. That's his answer. So we're going to wrap it up. How we need an encounter with the living God. So appreciated the the worship liturgy today that took us to the Lord, took us in confession, brought us back into praise, how we need to be called by worship leaders into the holy places of worship, how we need the prophetic voice in the pulpit faithfully holding out the word of God, and how we as a people need to be a people of God on our faces in prayer. And so I'm just so thrilled to be able to be with you because like, we're like, you know what, you guys aren't going to plant churches in BC, I don't think, but you can help us and you can pray for us. We're trying to raise up leaders and interns just like you're doing. We're trying to raise young pastor couples to go out into communities where there aren't churches. So would you pray for us? And we know on this end of the country that you're doing the same thing. And it's, it's almost like that imagery of Nehemiah building the wall. They built there, they built there, next to them, next to them, next to them, next to them. There's a whole chapter of that, next to them, next to them, next to them. You guys are doing your part on the corner of the wall. But there's also that scene on the wall where it says, and hey, if the enemy comes to attack, make sure you got a trumpet and just blow the trumpet and people will rally to you. So I think we need to blow the trumpet as well and go, hey, help us. So as you blow the trumpet to the rest of Canada and go, help us in Newfoundland. And as we blow the trumpet out there and you pray for us and you support us in our labors, it is this co-laboring for this mission field called Canada. If revival starts with sleepy Christians waking up, then we need to say, oh God, awaken us. So as we close, I want to uh, just finish with one verse of scripture. I don't know, how are we closing, Stephen? Is there songs or the music? Is it, okay, there's going to be, great, the, the team can come. But we're going to well, stand with me, and I want you to sing, say this verse out loud with me and use it as a prayer. It's from the end of the book of Isaiah, and it ties so beautifully with what we have just talked about, Ezekiel, as the watchman on his wall. 
and us and the watchmen of our wall. And so the first phrase is, is O Jerusalem, and we could just as easily say, O Canada, or O St. John's, or O Abbotsford, or, or O any place that we call, but in this context, it's O Jerusalem. And I think I'm going to read out that. It's a little different than what I've got. So let's read this together. So on your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night, they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest. And give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. It's an interesting text because it's like you who are watchmen on the wall, don't rest. Don't take any rest. Keep at it. Keep at it. Keep at it. And then what an interesting phrase. And don't give God any rest. Now, we sang earlier, God never sleeps anyway. But it's like, don't let God take a day off. Don't give God any rest until he blows with renewal across your nation. So may it be our prayer.